Yeah, we sh- as Pastor Clemmer said, we should probably start since there's some people who weren't here last week and um, just to kind of refresh our memory, maybe go over just a, like a 30,000 foot view of what we talked about last week on the first lecture, first chapter of The Abolition of Man, which Lewis called the Men Without Chests. Um, and before, I mean, I'd re- actually like to kind of turn it over to you to see what you all remember, or if, if anybody could maybe summarize like what that chapter, 30,000 foot view, you know, what that chapter is about, or what Lewis is going after in that chapter. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, can I add, he's going after the position that says there is no, no absolute value, or that all qualifiers... Um, all statements that would add value to something or would make a value judgment are ultimately subjective. He's going against that. Uh, he's attacking that position. Not One of the criticisms that Lewis got and still gets uh, is that while he goes after it, he doesn't really... He doesn't do justice to the Green Book. He doesn't quote from it a lot and he doesn't really... Uh, he's not doing sort of an, a real academic, uh, scholarly sort of dismantling of that that position. There's good reason for that. I think we talked about last week. These started as just three a series of three lectures at Durham University. They were supposed to be 50 minutes in length. I mean, we actually read out a paper to people, and nobody wants to sit through a paper of a guy reading a lecture, uh, quoting a book. Um, so it's he's not. Lewis was not doing or write, did not write these uh, to do like an actual scholarly monographic type of work. It's more of a, it's, I guess, popular level philosophy. Even though it's not the most, it's not the easiest thing to understand. But uh, he's not going point by point to refute things. But he is going after this view that uh, we referred to the term positivism last week. Um, sometimes, and he uses the term in the second chapter more, uh, subject, it was sometimes called subjectivism, um, which is, again, this position that says if you, call, if you rate something as good, better, or best, or something sublime, or, or whatever, those are just an expression of your emotions. There's nothing objective about it. Now, there is a point, part in the first book that I don't know, I can't remember if we talked about it or not, uh, but Lewis says something to the effect, he goes, I wouldn't be so uh, irritated by this book except that they said all statements of value are simply emotional or subjective expressions. He, I, we did have a discussion about how some things are subjective. Some things are, you know, we, in, our, in our culture, the way we evaluate things are in a way constructed. Not all things, but some things are. Like whether we regard Pastor Clemmer as handsome or not. Clearly there's, that's not objective. Our evaluation is... Um, Mandy might think so, but uh, clearly it would be kidding here. Um, um, so, you know, but point being, there is, there are, there are, it's not easy to grasp. And he, makes this, he drives this point home when he's talking about the Tao. Like, what is it? And how is it he can talk about the Tao or the way or natural law or uh, practical reason or, you know, it goes by different names. How is it that... Um, you can talk about it as an objective thing when there's lots of disagreements across cultures over this this common theme. And and so he would certainly say, if I could channel an inner Lewis, I won't try to do a British accent because it would be terrible, Um, but uh, is that 
um, it's not necessarily easy to figure out what really is objective and what really is better than something that's good and so on and so forth. But it is, it is, there is an objective good, true, and beautiful out there. Does that make sense? And you saw in, in the second chapter on the Tao or the Way that he, he doesn't really think that you can actually... It's not the easiest thing to defend either. It's something we all just sort of assume. And for, for Lewis and for think, Christian thinkers, but not just Christian thinkers, think Western and well, global thinkers who are part of traditions, long historical cultural traditions, uh, they, they've all assumed there are certain objective values in their, their culture, but they're really hard-pressed to really point to like where the real foundation is. But if you start challenging the foundation, all things, things go to... I don't know if you need to edit this out or if I can even say this in a... I mean, it's a youth group room, so it's okay, right? Uh, things will go to hell in a handbasket really quickly uh, if you get rid of any sense of objectivity or you even start questioning the very foundation of things. Um, I mean, I, in a way, we're fortunate that uh, America is a pretty, relatively speaking, um, globally speaking, a relatively civil place, even still. I mean, I mean, jump, go over to Syria and see how things are going there in the, the Becca Valley. Um, I mean, America is a pretty awesome place, even still, though it's crazy. Um, um, we're fortunate that things are kind of holding together. Uh, um, again, relatively speaking. But imagine if we didn't have that sort of borrowed capital from our, our Christian or our deistic past. Imagine if we did, uh, in the, the second book, or the second chapter, uh, Lewis refers to this name Nietzsche or Nietzschean ethics. I'm not sure if you, I don't know why you would go and look that up, um, but uh, if you looked that up, he'd bring you to a name, a, a philosopher, a German philosopher who actually had a Lutheran background. A lot of Awful people in history had Lutheran backgrounds, by the way. I don't know why that is, but uh, Marx, for example, um, either Lenin or Stalin. I mean, it's, 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 there's a book there, I guess. But uh, um, uh, Nietzsche was a, a philosopher, German philosopher. He died of like complications and syphilis or something like that in, I think, 1900. Uh, he's the one who famously said, uh, God is dead. We've killed him. Um, and he puts it in, there's a book he has, it's not, it's called The Gay Science, gay meaning the old, you know, the old meaning of the term. Um, he's got this parable of this madman who comes into a village and he announces to everybody, God is dead, we've killed him. Uh, what, in summary, he said, what next? And the whole point Nietzsche was uh, making in that text is not necessarily, I mean, he was an atheist himself, he's not necessarily reveling in that, but he's saying that Western civilization, since the, the Enlightenment, so let's say mid-17th century, about 150 years after the Protestant Reformation, had, was starting to, and increasingly so, will figure out ways to explain everything and get, a, get on with things apart from any reference to something objective, something higher, something divine. And for Nietzsche, when he has this madman saying, God is dead, we've killed him, Western civilization has figured out how to live without God. And what's next for Nietzsche, uh, you could hang on to the borrowed capital of your Christian past, but that makes no sense. It's going to leave you behind as we continue to evolve, maybe upward. Uh, or you could really seize the moment or seize the day, so to speak, and, and, and 
make your own set of morality and values and become that ubermensch, that, that overman, that superman um, who defines reality for themselves. And in many ways, I mean, this is all sort of, this is a, a, a thesis. It could be challenged. I might be wrong. Please don't share it when we're recording. But uh, um, we're kind of living in a Nietzschean age where the, as Nietzsche put it, the horizon has been washed away. And every individual now, this is, I think we talked about Carl Truman's book, just a tad, um, The Making of the Modern Self, where he, he argues um, with the getting rid of theism, not necessarily Christianity, but theism, which is even more fundamental and basic and, and plainer, um, there really isn't a ground for anything, any sort of shared worldview or collective values or anything like that. It's every person for themselves such that there is not an objective world. Every individual makes up the world for themselves. They construct it in their own image or how they want, um, even so much so that they can, even though biology, biological facts say otherwise, they define a new reality for themselves, and we're all supposed to go along with it, as if it's sane. Um, Anyway, I got off track there. Uh, so the argument, back to the original point, the argument is he's, he's attacking or going after the position or in a way like, I think it was either Russell Kirk or William F. Buckley or one of these people connected with the National Review back in the day who said a, a conservative is somebody who stands athwart history and yells stop, you know, slow down. Um, that's kind of what Lewis is doing is in lecture one. Saying if, we, if this stuff which has now found its way into um, you know, um, elementary, secondary school level textbooks takes hold, um, you're going to see things go badly very quickly. So much so that nobody, and again, he's, he's writing and lecturing in the midst of World War II. There's going to be no reason to, to fight for higher things or to defend your neighbor in a way or anything like that. It, it'll be every man for themselves. And he really reiterates that point in in the, the second lecture. Um, anything else from the first chapter? I've been using the terms lecture, chapter, and book interchangeably. They all mean the same thing. Yeah, so we call them, California, we call them Socrates, but Socrates were... Well, that would be more yeah. but I don't know what he was teaching the youth, but it seems like there's always a, a group somewhere that derives, that arises, that people buck, and it seems like, you know, obviously, he, Lewis is doing that same thing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's nothing really that is brand new, it's just he... Yeah, yeah, you're you're right on there. Um, If you, I mean, this is again off topic, but since we're talking about a philosophical work, it's within the the broader view of things. Way back when, in the time of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, there was a group of philosophers called Sophists who were kind of like the authors of the Green Book, who said. Every, every, you know, our judgments on things, our evaluation of things, whether they're good or bad or beautiful or, or what have you, is all subjective. Or at least there's no way to know whether something's good, better, or best. So the, the role of public discourse or philosophy is simply 
uh, to use clever words uh, for you know in in you know re- using your rhetoric to persuade people, especially people of of opinion. And these sophists would be would be bought and paid for by politicians. And, it's kind of a perennial thing uh, to to cast a vision to 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 sell a narrative to get people on board with something. But they those sophists didn't believe it was really true. It was just something that would attract the masses. It was propaganda, and so it was in the in response to those sophists in the ancient world, you get the rise of real philosophy of of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and they have their differences. And but you can you can see this stuff throughout the the centuries in the in the Christian era. You see it arise deep in the Middle Ages. Um, you've perhaps heard the name Thomas Aquinas. I think maybe Lewis mentions him. Um, he certainly has read a lot of Thomas Aquinas. But Thomas Aquinas was part of a school of Christian philosophy we call Scholasticism, also known as Realism, that says. Um, it has as its basic assumption that there, there's a, a world outside of our head that really does exist independent of our perceptions of it. Meaning, we don't construct the world. The world exists. You know? and, we, and moreover, he would say, we can discover that world and we can make statements about the world that are true the way we know they're true as if our statements about the world actually match up with the real objective world. Then you get another philosopher who comes along named William of Ockham in a school called Nominalism and says, maybe there's a world outside of our brain that really does objectively exist, that's physical and also a moral world too, but you can't really know it. You can't really know if, if uh, in an objective way. You know, we, maybe we could presume it. And so what the Nominalists would say, and these are like 15th century, right before the Protestant Reformation, would say that... Uh, you know, the more extreme ones would say that our descriptions of the world, our worldviews, our narratives really are just an expression of the self. Again, like the Green Book guys. Gaius and... Have you, you've listened to podcasts on this. Are they pronouncing it Titius or Titius? Both. Have you, they, both? They, okay. Both okay. I mean, I don't you know. I don't know. One, one of them was like narrated. One of the guys who narrated was like this. He married a lady who had kids, and her son was one of the narrators with a British accent. Oh, okay. He pronounced it way, and there's some classics major with a, from England also pronounced it the other way. So okay. you go the other way. Okay. There's some Titus. Yeah, yeah. They're classical names, common classical names, but I, I didn't know what the common... I didn't want to sound like a, basically a bozo up here, so I was just checking. <laughs> I'm already big enough, Bozo. It's something I want you to speak to. Yep. Um, especially as an ed- educator, really as a dean at a university, a dean at, at the university, and with a lot of educators here, and, our, and really as a church in the school, he makes a statement the task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate mm-hmm. the deserts. So, uh, it's a, a profound statement. Be sure. So, what what would education, as as one is trying to irrigate deserts, how would one go about doing that? I guess what's in, well, what's in his mind. Great, great question. I'm not just saying that because you're a pastor. Um, uh, I mean, that's a, a common theme in a lot of scholarship on Lewis. There's even a book called On Irrigating Deserts, published by CPH, and a bunch of LCMS people have written on 
on what he means by it. So first question I'd like to ask or address is, like, what does he mean? It's not like thinning out jungle, jungles or whatever, but irrigating deserts. For when he talks about irrigating deserts, he's, that's a criticism of the state of education in mid-20th century England, that it had been sort of captured by, the, in, by folks like the authors of the Green Book, these pragmatic schools of philosophy that didn't think there was that um, the transmitting of values and a culture to students was worthwhile. It's more about science and you know, vocation or professional development and these sorts of things. Uh, for, for Lewis, what that led to then is like this, this barren wasteland of, of students who just don't have an intellect. They've been trained to, to, for a profession to make perhaps a lot of money, but they don't know how, they have the wisdom to know how to spend it, what good way to spend it. You know, uh, that's the analogy that's oftentimes used by people like at, at Hillsdale. Um, so the the desert is his description of the state of modern education in the American scene. It would be the state of modern education under the influence of like Dewey uh, and in that sort of turn in the early 20th century where there's a move away from and it's defined differently, which is fine, but away from like classical education where you're just reading great works from the past and learning, not just, you're learning reading, writing, and arithmetic and all that scene is, is vital, but you're also learning higher things as well. And it, it ratchets up over the, the grades, right? But uh, you're learning the virtues by reading uh, uh, examples of virtuous people in the past. Uh, you're you're uh, learning how to think critically, how to assess whether how you can know whether something's a good source or something's true or false, and, and so on and so forth. And for when he's talking about de- an educational sort of environment that's a desert wasteland, in Lewis's view, is a is a place where people might seem really smart because they know how all the techniques and how to manipulate technology and things like that. But it's still a wasteland because they don't know how to think. They don't know how to think through tough issues. Um, so how do you do that? For, for Lewis, um, he would be a huge proponent of a return to the, what they would call in England the, the greats, what we'd call classical education. An education that, to be sure, does all the stuff, does science and mathematics and um, I don't know what else is there, um, chemistry and you know, the languages and things like that, by, you know, that sort of by rote kind of stuff, but also doesn't lose sight of the higher things, the things that really can't be measured, you know, like what it means to be courageous or wise or uh, what it means to have, uh, to be modest or to exhibit decorum, uh, you know, those sorts of things. So, so just like, as he says, the task of not to cut down jungles. So in the cutting down jungles, is he have in mind kids, people are just have a lot of emotions that are happening and we want to teach them, you know what, don't trust your emotions at all. Your emotions are, uh, can, can deceive mm-hmm. you. That would be cutting down jungles, right? Which what, which what yeah, in his analogy, yeah, yeah. So then, irrigating deserts and trying to cultivate virtues in, in the, the educated would be like um, when it, having a, in the back of your mind a focus on everything that we're teaching the kids, which is what we do here at Bethany, Everything is, is 
undergirded by a creator, a redeemer, yeah. saying yeah. you know, what who our Lord is, so that um, there's not, I guess, but wouldn't that, wouldn't, from their perspective, wouldn't they be saying we're irrigating deserts mm -hmm. by, by teaching them a different um, set of principles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would include, because otherwise, otherwise we're just, we're indoctrination, that education is about indoctrination. That's my, that's my point. Is that what makes education in this sense different than just indoctrination with whatever your worldview is? Uh huh. And you can be Muslim, you can be Christian, we happen to be Christian, so we indoctrinate our kids with that. Uh huh. We irrigate that desert. Uh huh. But if I'm even. Muslim Nietzsche and whatever it is, I can cultivate that worldview. So, okay, so the desert metaphor is a also metaphor for something that a, a place that's been where everything's flat. There is nothing higher. So Nietzsche, there's nothing higher in Nietzschean ethics. Now, in Islamic ethics, there's something higher. And, and again, Lewis is not doing a Christian. This is not a Christian apologetic or anything like that. It's a he's simply he for him edu. Let me backtrack a bit. An excellent example of what he means by cultivating or irrigating deserts is uh, if you go online, you type in education is transmitting culture and you type in Russell Dawn. It'll come up in Google somewhere in the next first five things. He wrote a little essay for the seminary in Fort Wayne on how education, yes, it's about knowledge, transmitting knowledge, but it's also real education and irrigating a desert is transmitting a culture. For Lewis, uh, Lewis is not a cultural relativist, but at the same time, he believes there's value and goodness in lots of different cultures, especially where the the Tao, you know, things intersect with the with the Tao. Um, but I, I don't know if I'm addressing your question. To your original question, though, how do you do that in our particular context? It is, it's, it's not necessarily classical education, you know, starting with Homer, reading 100 books, and by the end, maybe you get to John Stuart Mill or something like that. It's, um, but it is reintroducing good literature where students learn great examples of virtue, where they learn their tradition. The, their theological and their maybe even their political tradition, like the American tradition. It would be, it would be not reading a book, not what is it, the scholastic reader and social studies about the Constitution, but reading the Constitution itself and trying to understand it in its original context. And these, those sorts of um, things, you know, like primary source approach to, to to education. Um, that's what Lewis has in mind. Um, that's the way to transmit a culture is to, to keep that culture alive, even though it might be the past, you keep it alive by still going back. Ad fontis is what the humanists back in the Reformation would say, people like Luther himself and, and Philip Melanchthon. You've got to go back to the source of our civilization. That'll include pagan authors from the Greeks to the Romans. It'll include medieval authors like St. Augustine, maybe Thomas Aquinas. It'll certainly include Lewis or Luther and and a host of others. Um, um, for Lewis, I'd advocate for this. As, well, it's even, absolutely essential. Even behind that, like the motivation for going back to those those works, it's like for for Gaius and Titus, it would be 
any of any kind of virtue, emotional perspective that you have for what is right and wrong, good and evil, can be trusted. That's at the root of what, uh-huh. what they're what they're teaching children. Versus, we're trying to teach kids. Well, there's there's something it, right and wrong. I don't have a I don't object to that sort of sentiment. I mean, I mean, I got two. You've got three daughters. So I got two. I I. I do not trust any of their emotions. I mean, that might make me callous. Um, I mean, I got caught telling them they needed to learn how to suffer in silence the other day. I'm told that's bad advice, but um, it's worked well for me. That's why I'm so normal. She cries when anything happens. But also, when whenever like when when somebody when mom is sad for some reason. And she's, there's something not right about that. That we wanted to cultivate. That. Sure, sure. So is that what he's getting at? Like, so when he, we we'll read it, we teach our kids a book. Uh, uh, uh. Yes, but there is something even behind that's the the it's this positivism and subjectivism from which that the green book comes. That whole philosophical tradition that says it's not just emotions; it's sentiments. The, the sentiments that you've you've learned, not necessarily uh, directly or um, oh, what would be the word that's been transmitted purposely to you? But sentiments you just pick up because of your family or your, the communities you're a part of, your church community, you know, where you would recognize there's some things that are just, you would feel, you would have an, what we would maybe would describe an emotional response to something because there's something moral going on there. But being, behind it is this philosophy that says, though that's all. Re- Emotion and is is meaningless. Uh, it's like a, a reduction. It's materialism at the bottom of it all. So I th- I think that's what he's really going after. But he's using the green book and and the example of you know emotions and how he says if a, you know the thing a schoolboy will learn from the green book is that they can't trust not only their own emotions but they can't trust anybody's emotions. That that's kind of surface level I think. I mean that's what's in the book. But behind it is this. He's going after uh, the the 19th and 20th century materialism, which had sort of reached was reaching its peak. Um, and while it's certainly it's not won the day, it's certainly very influential today. I mean, you see it in in higher ed all across the board when it comes to accreditation, probably in in K through 12 schools as well. When it comes to learning outcomes for for students, if you want to be accredited, you have to have learning outcomes and. Um, if you put something down like, well, our students will uh, be exposed and, and exhibit uh, virtue and be exposed to the classical virtues and, and know how to exhibit virtue in their own life, the, the immediate response you're going to get from certain types of educators is, well, how would you even measure that? What is virtue anyway? It's, 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 that's so subjective. We need to be able to measure it like in a material you know, numbers way. We need to have a, a Qualtrics survey. We need to have bubbles for students to fill out. And, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of, am I answering your question kind of, or am I just beating around the bush? No, I, I just wanted to talk. We could fight. The, the deconstruction of, for, for Lewis, would be the Western tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did bring this. I wasn't sure if I gonna, was going to use it. I brought a, a, a text from a, very famous, award-winning uh, educator who died a couple years ago, so fui on him, um, who uh, is sort of like the culmination of all this and is not the first, but was very um, transparent about what, at least in his 
tradition of education was all about. And I'm just going to read a little bit from his name was Richard Rorty. Um, he says, the fundamentalist parents of our fundamentalist students, and by the way, fundamentalist, even though you might call it, not call yourself a fundamentalist, he has people like you in mind. Uh, think that the entire American liberal establishment is engaged in a conspiracy. Uh, these people would say that the typical communication situation in American college classrooms is no more domination-free than, than in the Hitler youth camps, and these parents have a point. Their point is that we liberal teachers no more feel in a symmetrical communication situation, that's an odd phrase, but when we talk with bigots than do kindergarten teachers talking with their students. In both college classrooms and kindergartens, it is equally difficult for the teachers to feel that what is going on is what uh, one scholar calls a convergence steered through learning of our perspective and their perspective, no matter whether they or we or both sides have to reformulate established practices of justification to a greater or lesser extent. Okay, here's, here's the juicy bit. When we American college teachers encounter religious fundamentalists, LCMS Lutherans, for example, that's me adding in there, uh, we do not consider the possibility of reformulating our own practices of justification so as to give more weight to the authority of the Christian scriptures. Instead, we are do our best to convince these students of the benefits of secularization. We assign first-person accounts of growing up homosexual to our homophobic students for the same reasons that German school teachers in the post-war period assigned the Dyer Van Frank. Uh, scholars can say that we teachers do our best to be Socratic, to get our job of re-education, secularization, and liberalization done by conversational exchange. This is true to a point. But what, assi what about assigning books like Black Boy, The Diary of Anne Frank, and Becoming a Man? The racist or fundamentalist parents of our students say that in a truly democratic society, the students should not be forced to read books by such people, black people, Jewish people, homosexual people. They will protest that these books are being jammed down their children's throats. I cannot see how to reply to this charge without saying something like, there are credentials for admissions to our democratic society, credentials which we liberals have been making more stringent by doing our best to excommunicate racists, male chauvinists, homophobes, and the like. You have to be educated in order to be a citizen of our society, a, participate, a participant in our conversation, someone with whom we can envision merging our horizons. So we are going to go right on trying to discredit you in the eyes of your children, trying to strip your fundamentalist religious community of dignity, trying to make your views seem silly rather than discussable. We are not so inclusivist as to tolerate intolerance such as yours. And he goes on and says, you might criticize me for uh, engaging in propaganda in the classroom that's similar to the propaganda as those Nazi school teachers. He says, and you'd be exactly right. My method is exactly the same. The only difference is I serve a more nobler cause, the cause of secularization and progressivism and so on and so forth. But that's, that's Richard Rorty. Um, I don't know if you've heard his name or not, but in in higher ed circles, he was a huge, he was sort of like the leading light of a particular branch of philosophy that has its roots in the positivism and subjectivism that uh, C.S. Lewis was going after. Um, so th while this is a historical book, in a sense, it's also very, um, not the easiest thing to read, but quite relevant for our times, I would suggest. I guess we got way off track there. Here we are re reading Richard Rorty. Um, there was a uh, Dominic, did you have a question earlier? I think I. Well, I just uh, uh, 
had a question. I, when I first read this in like the 80s, uh, the CS world, not the board, uh, um, I, I, I resonated with it because I looked around in Chicago and, and postmodernism started to come in and both swing. You can see it in the, in the classroom. Um, but I think you might have missed the mark a little bit. It seems more like it wasn't as deadly as it was a vacuum. Deadly can last, right? It's a stable equity system. The vacuum, you know, ain't your force vacuum, right? Something's going to fill Something else is going to come in. Mm-hmm. People need something. And I think that's what we're seeing now. The desert didn't stay. We're now actually, I think, going back towards the jungle. The jungle full of poisonous plants, but not mm-hmm. the desert. Mm-hmm. So I'll let you comment on that. <laughs> Maybe a new abolition of man needs to be written by you. <laughs> How to, to, to tear down the jungle. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, um, I've been thinking a lot about, and if you talk to Pastor Clemmer for any length, probably you've heard the word ideology come out of his mouth. And I've, you know, he, he had a, a mentor as his, when you were um, a vicar that I met who turned me on to this concept of ideology in a, in a, a serious, like sort of academic way. And um, so I've been trying to figure out like how to define it best. There's lots of different definitions and how to trace the, the roots of it. And it seems to me, I came up with two different sources most recently. The most recent one was would be uh, this guy. I'm not like the biggest fan of him, but I don't think he's all that bad in everything. Uh, Jordan Peterson in his latest book says, ideology grew in the soil that Christianity had created. When Christianity re- uh, kind of retreated from, from culture, popular culture, a vacuum was left behind. It had to be filled by some sort of System, some sort of worldview, and what fills it are these these ideologies uh, that are quite poisonous, whether it be socialism or feminism, certain types of feminism, maybe. Um, I'm just a, a a dad, so I don't know. I don't have a sort of read on the whole scene here in Chicago or across uh, America, but I I don't think you're wrong. I wouldn't tell you if you're wrong publicly, anyway. But uh, I, I really don't think you're wrong. Um, at least in American higher education, Concordia excluding, excluding Concordia, um, higher education is just a, a, a rabid ideological environment. Um, where I mean, I have a not a friend but an acquaintance who just reached out to me because he got censored by the whole faculty at DePaul University for having the wrong view on Palestine. Like there's, a, you have to have orthodox views on. On everything from the you know the question about uh, gender identity to um, to uh, political stuff like what your view on Israel is. What exactly um, does that mean for him to be censored? Uh, means he's so he so he's he's tenured so he's probably going to win a lawsuit so good on him. Um, he's it means he won't be able to teach. Um, it means he won't be his. He won't have a vote at. I don't know if they have a faculty senate there or not. But you know, he just won't have any. He will have zero role in the governance of the institution. He will, you know, won't be teaching. He just sort of no longer really a faculty member in, in terms of a normal faculty member's existence. I don't know what their particular handbook says on what happens when to a person's salary and so on when that sort of thing happens. But so now he's looking for a different position. But. Um, or most recently, I was going to go to a conference over in late March for an organization that's a, 
like very broadly defined Christian organization. Um, then I found out you, you had to you have to sign up for some vaccination passport. And this is not a commentary on vaccination. I'm had to get vaccinated for work, but you have to have like boosted. You have to be boosted. Whatever. Then there was a thing where it wouldn't let you finish your registration until you actually filled out your pronouns. I'm out. And you're still working through that. Yeah. I thought I was a Zay or a Zer, and so I Googled it, and I'm stealing from a comedian. And it turns out I'm a he, him. Um, I, I don't know if I answer, answered your, your. You asked me to come. I, I, Yeah, well, I'll, I'll name some of the big ones out there. Um, so you've, you've all heard of CR, critical race theory. Uh, another name for that, the, the most recent nomenclature for that by that James Lindsay has coined is um, race Marxism. Because the people who behind the formulation of critical race theory, um, they were educators. They were part of this what's called the critical pedagogy movement. It came out. It's especially a hotbed of it is here in Chicago, but also UW Madison. Um, uh, they originally called it critical Marxism, and it morphed into critical race theory. I mean, all the, all the stuff you're this woke stuff you hear about has roots in at least in the academic side of it into. Uh, or back to the, the Frankfurt School, which was a school for cultural Marxism, as they first named it. They, they quickly had to change the name because Nazism was on the rise, and the Nazis hated the, the socialists. So, um, but the critical race theory, or race Marxism, is real popular. The um, um, transgenderism and all different names for it is is uh, vogue. Um, Basically, the position—you know—a position that says, uh, you know, like a radical egalitarianism that, that says all things should be made to be equal, um, that outcomes should be guaranteed to be equal, and so on and so forth. Is I mean, that's what underpins so much of this. Um, I don't think James Lindsay and others are wrong to call this a, a form of communism. Um, that might be kind of hyperbolic, but I. I mean, in a youth room, I'll say that. So be careful where you're sending your kids to college. That's what I'd highly recommend. There's a place down the road that needs students. <laughs> All right. Um, Why don't we take a break and yeah. we'll jump in the, the book the, to cover the book. All right. Uh, the second chapter, The Way, or I think some editions have it titled The Tao. First, on nomenclature, I think maybe we talked about this last week, but uh, the Tao is... Anybody recall what, what he's talking about there? Like, what is the Tao? Is he trying to slip in some Taoism or Confucianism on us? or one with nature. It's like the way. Yeah, the way, um, the way that Tao Te Ching, which is like the text for Taoism, says it is the way that can be named is not the way. 
it's, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around it. But what he means by it is what we, what in the Christian tradition, we'd call natural law. And, I mean, the, the place to go to, there's lots of places to go, but Romans chapter 2 is like the classic biblical passage for natural law where, where Paul says, this is a, a summary, but he says, um, oh, I thought that was mine. <laughs> um, Paul says, uh, even the Gentiles, uh, by wanting to do what is right, even though they don't have the law, they don't have a written commandments, they don't have a scripture, they bear witness that the law has been written, written on their hearts. So, and that's, there's, a, um, there's a tradition that extends before the New Testament on natural law thinking in the West. It's, it's, this, it's hard to really categorize. Lots of books have been written on it, but it's this sense that there's an objective moral, um, there are objective moral principles out there. <clears throat> No real serious natural law thinker, whether it's ancient or modern, would say it's an easy task. They'll all recognize there's lots of disagreements, and especially when you get to the particulars, but, but there is some, something out there, something objective, some objective footing. Now, one big question about this would be that we might ask, as especially Lutheran uh, Christians, is because uh, we don't have like the strongest tradition in natural law thinking. Uh, it's not that we reject it, it's just that maybe other traditions do it better. Um, the Catholics are really strong on natural law thinking and some evangelical uh, theologians. But um, um, what, what use is some sort of defense of the natural law or natural law argument for the evangelical, that is the gospel-centered Christian? Uh, we might be tempted to say, "Well, it's of no use because it's such a hazy concept. You know, it's, you can't even really, you can't point to it necessarily. Um, there's lots of disagreements over it, so it doesn't really, it's not all that uh, useful for the, the the Christian who's just simply wanting to speak, look for opportunities to speak the gospel to their neighbor." Um, I would. Argue, Lewis. Actually, let's go with Lewis. And I don't know if we have the same page numbers, but in page forty-nine, towards the end of the chapter, uh, he says, "I am not here attempting any direct argument for theism. Um, theism is a philosophical term for the worldview that Christians and Jews and other monotheists share in in, in general." Uh, some might include, even though Pastor Clemmer wouldn't like to do it, uh, would include Muslims in that, that tradition. But basically monotheists um, of whatever stripe. So I'm not attempting an in, any indirect argument, certainly not a direct, nor is it an indirect argument for theism. He's, this is not, a, again, we talked about this last week, he's not making a Christian argument. This is a, a cultural sort of apologetic, if you will. Um, I am simply arguing that if we are to have values at all, uh, we must accept the ultimate platitudes of practical reason, or the Tao, as having absolute validity. It has to be the foundation for our thinking about virtue and morality and ethics and, and so on and so forth. And as we talked about last week, for, for Lewis, he's in a way acting as, and in a way, maybe Christians, not necessarily as Christians, but as citizens in the left-hand kingdom, uh, wherever they might be, in our case it would be here in America, or America, um, would uh, you know this is an important part of our role in the public arena, um, even though it's not a Christian argument. 
Um, for Lewis, and maybe for us, he's, he's acting as, I think the phrase we used last week was, is a custodian. Somebody who's trying to preserve, preserve the Western heritage in some sense of the term. And part of that Western heritage, of course, maybe all of it, uh, some would argue, is, the, is the, you know, the Christian worldview, the Christian view of things. So, so in that way, this book, as complicated as it might be, has some utility. I would argue, though, and I know you read Mere Christianity, or some of you read Mere Christianity last year or pre-COVID times or something like that. Uh, in that first book or first lecture in Mere Christianity, Lewis makes an argument that is a direct argument for natural law and that even those who reject a natural law will object to certain things on moral grounds, betraying the fact that they actually assume some sort of natural law foundation to things. And, and even though towards the end of that first part of Mere Christianity, Lewis says, just because I've shown that there must be some sort of moral natural law giver, i.e. God, doesn't mean we've gotten anywhere closer to Christianity. But then he says, however, once people realize that they have not always been good, that is, they've disobeyed the, the, the law of the natural law giver, and they, he doesn't, this is Francisco's paraphrase, and they're uncomfortable with that, or what Luther would call when they start to experience uh, unfectung or spiritual angst or something, that's when Christianity begins to, begins to talk properly, because that's when the gospel comes in. So even though Lewis says this is not an, even an indirect argument for theism, I would argue, I mean, it at least helps organize the intellectual furniture a bit to begin thinking about natural law and its role in our society and perhaps um, prepares the, the mind to make a, a case for natural law in, in the case of a, a speaking to a non-Christian. I know it's not a direct thing, but um, Mark Knoll, who I think I told you last week is giving a series of three lectures, they might be over now, at the Wade Center at Wheaton College on the reception of, of um, C.S. Lewis in America in the second half of the 20th century. He has a book from maybe 40 years ago called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, where he sort of surveys the, the intellectual climate across what he would call Bible-believing Christians who have, you know, are, take the gospel seriously, whether they're Lutherans or pro, pre, uh, Presbyterians or non-denominational Christians or, or what have you. And he says the scandal of the evangelical mind is that it has no mind. It's deeply anti-intellectual. It's, it's suspicious of philosophy and, and so on and so forth. And I'm, I, I don't need to know, do I need to lay down my Lutheran credentials at all? I'm really committed to Lutheran tradition, but there is a, a, a stream in, in Lutheran culture, broadly speaking, that is very suspicious of, of this sort of thing. I'm not exactly sure why. I think because it can go haywire and weird and philosophy. If you've spent much time talking with philosophers, they can be, a, I mean, they're like the most detestable of all people. They just don't stop asking questions and critiquing and, and so on and so forth. But there is some utility to it. Uh, like it or not, we all have a worldview. Like it or not, we all. It might not be fancy, not be not, not be huge words, but we all have a sort of philosophy of life. Whether we can articulate that uh, in a serious intellectual setting or even in at the local truck stop, uh, Denny's restaurant, um, we all do have that. It's just. Um, for, for Mark Knoll, for a person like C.S. Lewis, um, it's, if Christians are to mi- be, play some influential role in American public life, they've got to really reclaim their, 
their, the intellectual tradition within their respective denominations. That was his argument anyway, 40 years ago. And he actually set Lutherans aside. He says, um, in a related essay, he says, Lutherans have these outstanding gifts that all of Christians, especially the Protestant world, would be well or would be better to learn from, such as the doctrine of vocation, the two kingdoms doctrine, certainly justification by grace through faith on account of Christ alone. But Lutherans just aren't out there engaging. Um, that, that was like 40, 50 years ago. I, hopefully things have changed. I have no idea. But um, um, So that I think while that might not be a practical reason, yet another reason, though, to, to not just put this book down and say, oh, it's too much. Uh, I don't know if anybody's doing that. I was tempted to do it this morning. But then was... What makes the practical thing to come up today in future devotions? Because <clears throat> so we have lost our country. What determines, I mean, if you're going to have laws that need to be enforced by the left-hand kingdom, uh-huh. something has to define good and evil. So what's going to determine good and evil? So our, as Christians, we would say, well, the Bible. So we take our Bible to the government and say, this is good and evil. Obviously, it doesn't, that doesn't work. So the natural law argument would be the, the way that we can argue for the, the Taoist basis of the Bible, the law of what is good and evil, and use that to make a case for what law should be, such as with marriage, in both conversations, the, the hot dog issues today of marriage and, and life, uh, abortion, we can't quote scriptures. Mm-hmm. We have to make a case from, well, babies can, can only come from a, <laughs> a certain setup, you know? Those are not well, law. <laughs> well, since you cracked open that door, this is not, I mean, in the Lutheran tradition, I, I said that maybe Lutherans don't have a, like a well-developed natural law tradition. We don't by comparison, but we do at the same time have serious Lutheran thinkers who have worked on it, including one of the primary authors of our confessional documents, Philip Melanchthon, Luther's right-hand man. And here's how he'll articulate natural law in the scheme of, of God's will and so on. Uh, he'll do it. Exactly, not exact, almost like Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic thinker from the 13th century. He'll say that um, when it comes to laws in the left-hand kingdom, when it comes to laws for people who don't necessarily share the same uh, assumptions or, or um, regard Christ- uh, the Bible the way Christians, especially Lutheran Christians, regard the, the Bible, the, the source of law in the left-hand kingdom is the natural law. And here's how he works out. He says, so there's, there's, he calls it eternal law. I haven't written on a whiteboard in years. Wow. It's like I'm back in college again, lecturing. Uh, this is God's will. Whatever God's will is, it's good. That's, it's eternal. It's unchanging. And so on. How do we access God's will? Can we climb out and consult, climb out of time and space, the edge of the universe, whatever that is? Uh, and ask him, you know, we would say, no, God tells us what his will is in two ways. Through, now if I was, oh, okay, it's working. If I was in a college classroom and my marker wasn't working, I'd throw a fit and throw it across the room just to keep the kids on their toes. Uh, he, he lets us, he tells us his will, it's in a, it's a hazy, um, not very concrete, certainly not specific way, but he, he tells us through natural law. He also tells us through what uh, Melanchthon will call divine law. 
or Thomas will call this as well. But in the left-hand kingdom, when it comes to our making of laws or checking the laws we have on the books, so to speak, to see if they really are just, if they should be considered laws and followed, uh, we, we check human laws or what Melanchthon will call positive laws. The stuff we write down against natural law. I mean, we could check it here. That would be awesome. But that's not going to really carry any weight for, for non-Christians. In fact, Luther himself says, when you're outside, when you're talking about religion, philosophy, law, politics, and the rest of this stuff, and you know, public matters, and you're talking about these matters with Jews, Turks, and other um, sectarians, as he puts it. And by that he means sort of like, in his context, it would be the humanist movement, the Renaissance thinkers, especially those Italian Renaissance thinkers, Ick, who are like dabbling in Greco-Roman philosophy and, and elevating the Plato and Aristotle over um, over Scripture and so on. When you have, when you're doing law and politics and these sorts of things with those sorts of people, you don't have the comfort of your church tradition, Christian theology, or the authority of scriptures on your side. They're still authorities, but they aren't to them. So Luther says, you're in another arena at that point, and you have to be as clever and wise and subtle as a controversialist, or an arguer, if you will, um, as possible. And, the, and you have to find, sort of like what Paul does at Mars Hill, when he's tackling the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in Acts 17. You have to find whatever common ground you have. Well, there is common ground. The scriptures tell us there's common ground in, in our natural knowledge of God that all people have and the law that God has written on every single human heart, the natural law. And so from here, we, you know, we measure the laws we receive from earlier generations, the laws we write or we're thinking through uh, against natural law. Now, will these always square heavens? No. Rare, maybe even rare, especially when you've got gajillions of laws, will they square? I asked um, the president of Concordia once what an example of a positive law would be that squares with natural law. And he says, well, there's lots, but he says, um, think about maternity leave. Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know what the law is on maternity leave, um, but... Uh, um, I was going to make a joke about my wife and how she doesn't work, but I won't do that because we're recording. Right. She's lazy and doesn't work or something. <laughs> um, kidding. Um, but think about maternity leave. He says, that seems like something we've just come up as a culture. Uh, but who else can feed that child? You know, of course, other, there are other ways, but like the sort of the, the, the historic natural way. There are other ways that are just fine too, but uh, you know, only the mother can feed that child. So it makes sense that this particular positive law that we've come up as a culture is just because it kind of nat matches what's in accordance with nature. So it's not the clearest thing. It's, it's a complicated sort of thing. The way that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Since it's, is it Black History Month? I think, right? Yeah. I, I probably should know this being at a university. <laughs> but um, when he was sitting at the Birmingham jail and he wrote that famous piece, A Letter from a Birmingham Jail, when he was... Um, trying to defend his, his peaceful protests uh, even though they broke the local ordinances. You know, marching in the streets of Birmingham without a permit. He gets thrown in jail for it. And he had a bunch of colleagues in the ministry um, who, said, who, who basically 
turned away from supporting him, saying, if you're going to break the laws, we can't support your, your protests. And so he wrote this famous letter, and he argues in one point, he's, he, it's kind of a famous line, he says, um, I'm, we're more than happy, this movement is more than happy to obey the law, but if the law is not just, it's no law at all. And he, as he explains it, he says, this, this law about local ordinances, yeah, there's a lot of good reasons for it, you know, so we don't disrupt business and so on and so forth. But in the cause of civil rights down there in Birmingham and other places, and remember, whatever you think about the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr., that, it's all fine and good, but the context is pretty awful at that time. When you get like, the killing of Emmett Hill, what was that, like, like mid-1950s, whose image was paraded in all the newspapers around the country and the civil rights movement began. It's, it's pretty awful stuff. I'm no big champion of all this stuff, but it's, it's a significant mo- a moment in American history. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. says that ordinance, there's a lot going for it, but when it keeps people who are routinely um, discriminated against and have actually their basic rights afforded to them by the Constitution in those, the Reconstruction Amendments, uh, are being militated against. Uh, when it keeps us from working towards the realization of those rights, this, bec- this local ordinance becomes unjust. And so we're, we, don't, we don't think that we need to, to uh, obey that law because it's not, it's not in accord with natural law. And for, for Martin Luther King Jr., for a person like uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and, and others, they really believe that the Constitution and the amendments are in some way an expression of the natural law. That is an expression of God's eternal will in, in some shape or form. The best book on this is a slim book. It's if you're, you know, it's it's not it's pretty technical. It's called the higher, uh, the higher law behind the U.S. Constitution. Or so I can get you the exact title, but it's a it's a pretty strong argument for natural law being enshrined or uh, even in our written laws here in the U.S. Constitution. Anyway. So, natural law. If in order for laws to be just, whether it's laws, uh, they have they have to link up somehow, correspond with natural law. Otherwise, what what's happened? This is what Dr. Don has told me. He goes when he went through law school, he said we didn't hear, I didn't hear anything about natural law. Of course, you couldn't talk about God. Of course, you couldn't quote scripture. And natural law—that's an old vestige from the sort of Judeo-Christian past in, in Western civilization, all we have is positive law. That is, the laws that the people make. That might work out if you've got people who are living on borrowed capital, but if you've got people who have bought into conspiracy theories about Jews wanting to take over the world and you know, poisoning wells and all sorts of other things that are starting to become popular in 1920s and 30s Germany, it doesn't work out so well. Just because something's written down doesn't necessarily mean it's just. But it, so, so like at that point, for, for Lewis, the, the Tao would be um, still still present. Like the, so when you've got like a bunch of people in, in Nazi Germany who have seen a no borrowed capital from Christianity, they're still going to be like, no, you can't beat my wife. Yeah. So, yeah, you can do all you want to try to get rid of that the Tao, the natural law, or whatever, principle, practical reason, or whatever you want to call it. 
uh, but it, it will always be there in some way. Even, even he would, doesn't say it here, but he could say something like, the extermination of certain populations, obviously it was evil and so on, but that they thought it was good and therefore tried to do it is in a way an expression of the Tao. In a, a, a totally twisted way, but or the does he do this in mere Christianity? Some other book. He says the uh, the cannibals in Papua New Guinea um, that they eat the brains of humans is is of course disgusting. But that they think it's good and therefore that's why they're eating it is an expression of natural law. So that, that's how weird natural law thinking can get. But it is an expression of of the Tao that. Cultures um, try to do, even the most radical social justice warrior out there is trying to do what they think is right. So then, like if I'm talking to a possibly giddy cannibal, they think what they're doing is right about eating my kids' brains, and I'm saying, no, it's not a They don't do that, by the way. That, they stop about 20 years ago. Allegedly. So, allegedly, <laughs> yeah. But so. Now I'm, I'm having a conversation with that person about um, how do I know which is good, my perception of good or your perception of good. That's chapter two. Can I give you a springboard back into? Oh, yeah. did I go off track? Sorry. <laughs> no. um, so it's an instinct. So instinct. So how do you know what the Tao is? Um, is it because it serves utility? Or is it instinct? I mean, I think those, that, that middle portion of the chapter is, is important. I think it can distract you from the larger, the larger argument, which I think uh, is right up front, the first three pages of the chapter. The result of this, the education or the philosophy of education put forward in that, that green book, he says, must be. It, it's not that it might be, but it will be. It necessarily will be the destruction of the society which accepts it. Um, and he goes on, uh, however subjective they may be about some traditional values, Gaius and Titius have shown by the very act of writing the Green Book that there must be some other values about which they are not subjective at all. They write in order to produce certain states of mind in the rising generation, if not because they think those states of mind intrinsically just or good, yet certainly because they think them to be the means to some state of society which they regard as desirable. Skipping later, he goes, In fact, actual fact, Gaius and Titius will be found to, to hold with complete uncritical dogmatism the whole system of values which happen to be in vogue among moderately educated young men of professional classes during the period between the two wars. Their skepticism about values is on the surface. It is for use on other people's values about the values current in their own set. Uh, they are not nearly skeptical enough. Uh, in that, that first three pages, four pages, his are, are, and what follows throughout most of the rest of that chapter is his argument that even though these, these guys, the authors of the Green Book, are going after, really are going after and are trying to deconstruct the values of you know, Britain or Western civilization, uh, and even though they're arguing as if there are no objective values, the fact that they're arguing that there are no objective values is an, ultimately an objective type of argument. It's like, I think last time we met, we talked about the postmodern claim that there is no absolute truth. 
is like saying it's absolutely true that there's no absolute truth. It's self-refuting. Everybody starts from what they think is objective or argues for what they think is good or true or, or, or beautiful. Um, now, how do you know what is the Tao? For Lewis, he doesn't, he doesn't really tell us here. But anybody want to guess kind of what he regards as a good um, source for understanding what the way or what natural law or what what sh- our values should be is? Well, no, not ten command. Yeah, let's say we can't use that as an example. Ten, ten commandments, yes, but that's a, only a piece of it. What's a, a sure guide, or not a sure, but a good guide? The Bible. What else? Conscience. Huh? Conscience. The conscience, the contemporary conscience. <laughs> for for Lewis, he he believes there are going to be issues, and, and and when he gets into discussion about whether the Tao is fixed or not, for him the the best guide for understanding the Tao, the Bible is a great source, but the whole for, he doesn't use this term, but the Western tradition and that larger global tradition. Uh, he, you know, he he prefers the term Tao, so he's talking about Chinese civilization and Confucianism, and particularly starts the whole chapter off with a quote from Confucius Analects. Um, but it's just there's a long history of people and cultures regarding that doesn't mean they're necessarily mean they're right, and it certainly might mean they need to amend. We might right now need to amend things if they're if we discover or we discern that they're unjust. Um, but history. The classics is our best guide. Now, for a Christian people, the Bible, the Ten Commandments, is going to be where it comes into sharp focus. That's the divine law that God has revealed to all people, but we're the only ones who recognize it as, as divine law, so it's not all that helpful to, to your Nietzschean neighbor. Um, but the whole for Lewis, anyway, whether we agree with him or not, I don't know, but for Lewis, Lewis is a huge fan of... Greco-Roman tradition of medieval literature, and you know the the weight of the Western tradition. For him, the best of that tradition is the surest guide to discerning what natural law is. At the same time, again to reiterate the point, he doesn't mean it's it's fixed. He doesn't mean it can't be altered. In fact, he's a he in while he's a conservative, he's also progressive enough to know that if something is clearly unjust. Uh, it should, it should, in fact, even though there's a long history of it in our tradition, it should be fixed. It should be brought into line with, with what really is the Tao. Again, it's not a clear thing, though. I mean, when he gets to the the end of the book or the chapter, um, when he's talking about how do you prove the Tao exists, right? He says you can't prove it. Uh, you've got to assume it. There's no shame in that because we all assume it anyway. All cultures assume it. Questions or comments? Apart from Pastor Clemmer, he keeps asking these big questions. Um, who? Well, so so for um, if this is Lewis, there, there's a. A canon, you know, I, there are others, they call them the wars over the canon now in higher ed. You know, like, what does Socrates have to do with the African-American student? Is like, you know, why should, why should he be an authority and not, you know, I don't know, some African poet or something? Um, for, for Lewis, again, we're mid-20th century. These sorts of things aren't 
debated. For, there's a well-established canon of what constitutes the, what we would call today the great books. Okay, that's what I mean. Yeah, so it's it's Homer, it's it's uh, Virgil, it's Cicero, it's Plato, it's Aristotle, um, it's it's Thomas Aquinas, Boethius. You know, there's a it's the tradition, so it's not a fix that you know. It's a, it, but it's a, there's a selection of texts um, that you can learn from that are sort of like the artifacts of our our civilization. So while he's not arguing this in particular, like not using the names or laying it out in a concrete way, again he's acting as a custodian of Western civilization, and he's advocating for a return to the Western heritage. And not, not completely renouncing the modern science and all these sort of modern techniques. Uh, he, he was always skeptical of those things. I mean, he never even learned how to drive. Right? He, was kind of, he wasn't a Luddite, but he was kind of a Luddite. Um, very skeptical because he saw what, what happened when, when technology was not used with wisdom and ethics. I mean, he served in World War I, where for the first time in human history, people are met with walls of lead coming flying out of machine guns. Or chemistry is, is, is put to service in, the, you know, in, in, in weaponry, like mustard gas, and so on. And certainly, he's, he's hearing about it. So this is 1943 when he's lecturing on it. And word is starting to get out what science, the scientists, the eugenicists in particular, uh, are doing in Germany. I don't think they've heard about what what, it, what the Japanese were doing to the Chinese yet, in like uh, Nanking and and the in, in previous decades. And then there was a I forget where it was. There's a certain unit of the Japanese military who were who made the Nazis look almost honorable in terms of the things they were doing. So that's why he's skeptical of science. Not he's he's skeptical, let's say, of scientism when science is seen as the solution to everything and is implemented in a way that is not checked by an objective standards of what constitutes good. Yeah? Well, on a regular basis I used to get uh, snail mail and now I get emails from the great books. The great so, book courses? Yeah. Yeah, as in or the great courses. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that's probably not a great source, but maybe a good source, but what other source of listing or whatever of great books would I find? So, uh, you, if you just Googled. There's actually a set called Great Books. Yeah, if you go to. Do you know the. Um, it comes from the University of Chicago. Mortimer Adler was like the big editor of all this, the, the Great Books series. Um, you can usually pick it up at library, you, you know, library bookstores. Not usually. Every once in a while, you find it. It's something like eighty volumes. And then there's the syn what is it called? The Synopticon that summarizes all that. Mortimer Adler put out a a fairly lengthy, I think, eight hundred page book called The Great Ideas, which collects all that into one massive volume. And all of that came after the Harvard Classics. Yeah, yeah. Because that was the discussion that preceded it. Because there Go. was a canon, like up until nineteen hundred. Everybody kind of agreed on what good books were. Yeah. If you go if you Google great great books, the great books in the Western tradition, something like that, you'll get a list. Or if you want to go to the university um, Saint oh, what, Saint John's College in Annapolis, Maryland or, or Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
is a dedicated great books college, and I mean that's their their thing. So they've got a, a whole listing. Hillsdale would have a list. Hillsdale College. Hopefully Concordia, Chicago will have a list. If we ever win the Cannon Wars, if we've not already lost. Yes, sir. I think that someone someone missed the point. Yes, he would definitely agree on a particular canon, especially back then. Um, but you shouldn't think that the canon of Western civilization is the same way you think of the canon of the Bible. Right? It's not like I'm reading Aristotle and I can actually So I'm just taking ideas and I'm bouncing against each other. So you can't look at it and say Romans is wrong and Jesus is right. You don't believe that. Yeah, going back to our discussion about do we just sort of accept what is considered good, true, and beautiful because it's been passed down to us, or is that is that alterable? Um, for him, absolutely it's, absolutely it's alterable, but it has to be done from within. That is with respect to the Tao. It has to be done from the basis of natural law rather than the outside where that presumes that there is no natural law, where it's just sort of like the chirping critic um, who's trying to deconstruct everything or cut off the, the limb that they're standing on, not recognizing that in some way they, they actually believe in the Tao as well. Uh, back to the canon issue, I think absolutely it's not a canon the way we regard the, the scriptures. It's much bigger than an open canon. It's not fixed. It's certainly, if you get, so we mentioned that great book series, the Synopticon, I think it's called, which is a summary. What it does is takes like a major theme like truth and traces it from... Homer all the way through whoever he ends with. I think it's John Stuart Mill or some, somewhere in the 20th century. And you see very clearly that there's all sorts of disagreements about what constitutes truth. Uh, but it's that tradition of wrestling with what is truth is, is what Lewis is trying to defend. He says the soil was prepared for Christianity by people like Plato and others, who, though they were weird, 
and pagan and polytheists and believed in odd gods and titans and all sorts of other things recognized that if there was a theulogu, as, as Plato put it, a word from God, that would, have the, that would be the final authority. They didn't really think there was a divine revelation, but they, were, they, were, they recognized if there was a logos that broke into time and space, that would settle it. Well, who comes around but the, the author, or John, who writes the gospel, in the beginning was the logos, and the, the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Um, for whether it was Lewis, maybe it was Mark, uh, Lewis Marcus. I don't, I don't know. I says the soil was prepared for Christianity because of that pagan world. They're integrally linked in some way, shape, or form. Lewis can will make this point too. He says the biggest division in world history or Western history is not the break away from the pagan world to the Christian world in the first century A.D. The real division of the Western world is around the 19th century the scientific revolution, where all of a sudden the Christian world was forgotten about and along with it went the pagan world. And for, for Lewis, in terms of education, if you were to ask him, well, how do you recover all that? It's not just reading the Bible for Lewis. I mean, he's an Oxford guy, so he's going to say it's more than just the Bible. It's the Bible and this, this great tradition before, say, the scientific revolution, this great tradition that goes through the Middle Ages even. Even if you're a Lutheran, the Middle Ages, the Catholic Middle Ages are important. Um, even if you're evangelical, the Greek and Roman authors are important because they make up our, our tradition. In some way, the past is, and not just the recent Christian past, but even the pagan past is still with us uh, today. As much as modernists, postmodernists would want us to forget it, uh, it still is with us. Um, though it's, I think, kind of vanishing. You know, you think of who our heroes now are. It used to be, if you thought about historical heroes, it would be, well, it's always the debate over whether it's Achilles or Hector in the Iliad, right? I think it's Hector, but some people think it's Achilles. I think he's a baby. But, uh, or, or if you want to hear about other heroes, it's usually people who are dying for something bigger, larger than themselves, in war usually, right? Now who are heroes? Those who have been oppressed and victimized, or even those who have, like, like a Juicy Smollett, is that how you pronounce his name? Who even have to, they even have to make up instances of oppression so that they can be seen as the heroes and hopefully they won't get discovered so uh, but this is it, this is not it's not directly here but this is what Lewis is really doing he's arguing for a recovery of the western tradition and respect for I mean the Tao that's the sort of the, he's framing it all around this discussion about the Tao but there's a much bigger cultural thing at play in fact he ends the, the, the second chapter um, by saying this is like page 50 and 51 in my text. Um, you say we shall have no values. He's talking about the people of the green, you know, who wrote the Green Book and others like them. You say we shall have no values at all if we step outside the Tao. Very well. We shall probably find that we can get on quite comfortably without them. Let us regard all ideas of what we ought to do simply as an interesting psychological survival. Etc. This is a very possible position, and those who hold it cannot be accused of self-contradiction like the half-hearted skeptics who still hope to find real values when they have debunked the traditional ones. This is the rejection of the concept of value altogether, but I shall need another lecture to consider it. Um, in the last book, he's going to argue for 
um, it actually gets darker. Like the second chapter is the most optimistic one of the, of the whole text, but he's going to argue as he gets darker that a recovery of the Tao, by extension, the Western tradition is absolutely essential unless you want another a century of evils to continue um, unfolding before your very eyes. And again, he's writing right in the midst of World War II and the horrors of the Holocaust are starting to, to rumors of the Holocaust are starting to circulate and people are starting to realize these rumors aren't just rumors. Comments? Questions? Is that rain I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. By way of application, as I'm thinking through this, um, so he's kind of making the case, we we simply, we joke in the last 20 years, about how to, sh- how to refute postmodernism. Like when you say there's no such thing as absolute truth, is that mm-hmm. absolute truth? And yet it's still, it kind of works. And what's kind of what he's doing in, this, in the second chapter is giving us a way, we're having a con- in our conversations with our, with our coworkers and friends and neighbors on um, what is right and wrong. If there is something that is held adamantly to be right or wrong, we ask the question, why? Why is that wrong? Why is it evil to mm-hmm. do that? Uh, and you just keep, you keep digging. So ultimately, to try to push them, the, the person we're in conversation with, toward the possible consideration of there's got to be a, something behind this mm-hmm. of informing us of what is right and wrong. And that's where we can kind of have our apologetic step toward the gospel, right? Because mm-hmm. we're not just trying to... I mean, if we're just trying to settle right and wrong, we didn't need Jesus. Mm-hmm. We're trying to ultimately get us to the cross in some way, and so we're dealing with people who are rejecting the cross, they're rejecting the scriptures, they're rejecting absolute right and wrong altogether, and yet they know that there's right and wrong. So we can use that in an advantage to mm-hmm. our advantage, it's like, why, why, why do you think there's a, a sense of right and wrong? Why, is your, why, do you, why do you think I'm bad because I'm saying that certain behaviors are wrong? You think that I'm bad, and therefore there is an evil. You think I'm evil, and there's an evil. Well, who determines that evil? Yeah, but It's like you talked about Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, I think, maybe last time or at some point, point around here you've talked about it, where he... he advocates in terms of speaking with your neighbor um, you can be as direct as you want but in terms of real practical ways of reaching people is not to tell them to you know to lecture them or to you know, get the megaphone on the street corner or something but just to simply start asking them questions and let them answer those questions and they start unraveling their worldview you know and they and there are times where as they're answering things in a way, you're kind of doing what Lewis is doing, where he's he's putting forward a reductio ad absurd, an arguing to the, illustrating some, a point to be absurd. Um, and uh, at least Greg Kolkel would say, if you can get somebody to disclose their worldview, I, I don't know if I told the story about the Mormon guy I've been in contact with for like 15 years now. Um, but when we first talked, I just I thought I'd try Kogel's tactics, and I was just asking these questions. We were on a three-hour flight, and he just kept towards the end. He was like nudging me. He was like, "And you're going to find this one really weird." 
we believe in this planet, Kolob, and, and that you can go there. And I'm like, yeah, that is weird. But, but they, they start to acknowledge that, yeah, I have a position that isn't really founded on anything, or maybe it's really bizarre and so on, but it's them acknowledging that, not you pointing that out. You know, you're not doing what theologians would call polemic, critiquing them um, such that they're not going to talk, you know, the conversations be over, but if they're all of a sudden answering open-ended questions like, why do you believe that? Or how do you know that? You know, these basic questions of, that discern what what their authorities are, where their sources are. I mean, they, they kind of do the work themselves in exposing how how shallow their, their view might be um, or how stupid such as believing the planet Kolob. I said that on air. But it doesn't exist. He's quoting the apologist, Lewis, is in... As I'm having a conversation with someone about why you think certain things are good or bad, and if you're going to go down a certain road utilitarian mm-hmm. or instinctive, if those are the roads you're going to go down, these are the faults. And he's he thought it through for us. So he's kind of given us a, a a map of where the conversation could go as we're engaging with our non non Christian neighbors on morality and using the the concept of objective morality as a as a starting point of the conversation. And in, in the chapter three then, it's like, well, if there is no morality, we, end up, we have nothing but evolutionism, which he, he doesn't call it that, as I recall. Maybe he does. But it's just power. Whatever mm-hmm. has the most power wins. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of what we're, mm-hmm. we live I mean, in yeah. a way. Yeah. So people, and, and most people can see that as, as a problem. That's why, like, all the people who would deny the natural law, deny morality, hated Trump. It comes out as power, for mm-hmm. example, right? To bring politics into it. So I, 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 something about being oppressive and forcing things on me. I don't know if I like that. Why? So now we got this conversation: is the grants are certainly ending politics? Is why that's problematic for them? And yet it's consistent with their evolutionary worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trying to, trying to, so the, the Lewis, well, he doesn't, well, Lewis doesn't necessarily give us an answer to evolution, man. He gives us kind of a roadmap of navigating conversations with our culture and where these conversations are going to lead us and using morality as the, the topic of conversation. Yes. It's nine o'clock, so I agree. But it isn't an argument about what's moral. I mean, that's just sort of a springboard. That's our. That's the sort of platform where the conversation begins. Because, I mean, so what if you convince somebody that position X is more moral? I mean, what have you? I mean, that's nice. That's a, that's not a Christian conversation. It's just a, it's the starting point towards a Christian conversation. So, yeah. We haven't gotten to, we haven't gotten to Jesus. I mean, and that's always been like your your whole shtick is at the end of the day, we teach somebody right. But there is there is an object of morality. But we haven't done any good if we don't give them the cross. Mm-hmm. So all this is in service to the greater conversation of who is Jesus and why yeah. we need it. Because if there is a right and a wrong, and there is a good and an evil. If we transgress that evil. What's the answer to that evil? That's where we want the conversation ultimately to lead, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Well, we're at time, and yeah. I know I'm going to try to keep our time here. So uh, stick around as long as you want, chatting. Uh, we have plenty of cookies and stuff left. Those are, are those like salted chocolate chip something. Man, it's addictive. Let's, uh, let's stand and close in Luther's evening prayer, and then we'll be on our way. Stay as long as you want. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong, and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Thanks. Good night.